I think it was as much as anything, it was a drive to, uh, to not have those challenges going forward that I'd faced as a, as a kid. That exchange between human beings and their interface with, a, with technology, the challenges are kind of universal even today. So it was very foundational for me. A lot of people look at it and say, what are you nuts? I have no interest in that. It can be a very personal uh, rejection. So uh, you got to suit up and be ready to play. But if you are not committed mentally and you're not enthusiastic and passionate and, and quite frankly, dedicated to a fault, uh, it's very difficult for most, most of us to find success. And by the way, on the human front, I think we would all agree right now in the public discourse, we could use a lot more praise and a lot more acknowledgement and recognition of people than, than uh, maybe the uh, reverse it makes business sense to say thank you as an organization. It's not just good for the heart, it's good for your P&L. And, and that's what's so wonderful about Grata. Hey guys, and welcome back to the I Love Success podcast. I'm super excited to be here today as always with you guys. Uh, we are here to share stories, to share ideas, to give you tools to create a better life. If you haven't met me before, my name is Peter Jumrukovsky. I'm a former world medalist, athlete, author, and uh, very, very passionate about stories and what makes us happy, what makes us successful, and how do we build a good life. This week, we have a serial entrepreneur, and I'm really excited. Today, he's in Austin. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let's welcome Mark Bunting. Hey, Peter. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, me too. So for people that don't know who you are, like how, how would you best describe that? Yes. Well, uh, depending on how far back you want to go, a lot of people knew me from my uh, television career in the 90s and early 2000s when... Uh, I was on CNBC and a host of networks as the computer guy. So I was sort of the first uh, person on uh, broadcast television talking about the internet and the emerging technologies therein. If you don't go back quite that far, uh, since then I've been a, a serial entrepreneur. I've built a couple of companies that I've sold. I've also been a, I like to call a corporate gun for hire, where I've been the chief marketing officer at both uh, McAfee uh, antivirus software, as well as recently at Rackspace. So I've been, a, I guess you'd call it a large cap techs, uh, chief marketing officer, uh, but mostly an entrepreneur. And, and in between that, I, I love teaching. I love this thing that you love, which is sharing success and, and mentorship. And so I teach uh, actually full-time at the University of Texas at Austin at the Stan Richards uh, School of Advertising, where I teach both technology marketing and advertising, but also two courses on entrepreneurialism. Awesome. And if we go back, Mark, to when you were, were a kid, can you just talk about that? Do you have what what do you recall as a kid that sparked that interest for entrepreneurship? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I can trace it all the way back to uh, early childhood. I know that I grew up in a family of of people who had their own individual businesses. Uh, none were what you would call uh, large successes financially, but all in their own right, either as tradesmen or craft people or, or retailers had successful independent businesses. So part of my DNA was growing up around my own family and just you didn't work for other people, at least not at a certain point in your life. So I had a little bit of that, I think, that was really helpful. 
I think as much as anything, we had some, uh, my own family went through some financial turmoil as my father was changing careers. And so we had a fair amount of instability. And so I really did, I think I rolled out of high school with a bit of a chip on my shoulder that I was determined not to have some of the same challenges. And uh, I went to three different high schools in four different years in three different states. And it was just, I think it was as much as anything, it was a drive to, uh, to not have those challenges going forward that I'd faced as a, as a kid. Totally understand. And how, you know, that driver, how did that help you, you know, to do more and work harder or smarter or, you know, kind of go after what a lot of people, you know, are, if you have it too well, sometimes it could be, you can go into a comfort zone, right? Yeah, no, that's, listen, it's a great question. I think any entrepreneur that, that has some success and builds a family and has some net worth, for example, you ask yourself these questions about your own children, right? And will they have the same sort of level of motivation? And, and uh, there's a whole spectrum of different answers and outcomes to that question. But I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, I was hungry and uh, I was really, really hungry. And that played, I think, such a critical role. But also, too, if uh, I think if you, if you, having to work part-time for some of your college money or all of your college money, or are you having to pay for your own things? The younger that happens, it just becomes a part of your sort of core DNA. And I don't know if I call it work ethic. I probably do. Um, but I think by necessity, many of us just grew up working because we had to, if you wanted that thing, I had to go get a job. <laughs> there was just no money laying around for that thing, right? So I think, again, I don't look at it in any uh, way, shape, or form as engineered. It was just a natural uh, a byproduct of the life I had. I had a great life and, and a, a comfortable or secure life. But, um, but financially, I had to fend for myself pretty, pretty early on. Yeah. Can we talk about what was your first uh, company that, that was unsuccessful or successful? And, and how did you... How did you get the idea? And just talk about the process a little bit. Yeah. So I think going all the way back to college, uh, uh, I ran into a guy that had access to importing name brand seconds uh, in fashion. And when I say seconds, if uh, you get a Ralph Lauren polo shirt with the polo man stitched on the front of the golf shirt, if there's an irregularity in that stitching in any way, it doesn't pass the code for Ralph Lauren. So it's thrown out the back and supposed to be destroyed. Well, lo and behold, I had somebody that was accessing all these seconds, and we ended up creating a, a direct-to-market business where we would go to fraternity houses and sorority houses and sell these seconds at a, at a very big discount. You can see I'm dating myself. I'm saying that Ralph Lauren was, was very hip on college campuses at the time. Um, I still love Ralph Lauren. <laughs> I, I do, too. I do, too. It's just I'm, I'm not sure it's got the same status inside the Greek community that it might have had those years ago. But... Um, uh, fast forward, uh, we were making a lot of money uh, selling those uh, selling those clothes, and so that was probably my first kind of direct to consumer engagement, other than mowing yards and stuff in high school. And, and it was successful enough that it really helped me financially, you know, in college. That is until at some point in the future when I got a cease and desist letter from the Ralph Lauren company that said you're not supposed to have access to these products, and that technically it's illegal to be selling them. So stop. So stop, I did. Lesson learned. Uh, uh, I didn't have the wherewithal to know the legalities of whether or not I was supposed to be selling them. I learned very quickly. But that was probably my first nascent company, you know, uh, as a kid. My first real, real entrepreneurship, I left my job at the Wall Street Journal where I had been in, in San Francisco and I had been in publishing. I was down in Los Angeles, not far from you, uh, for uh, some time as well. And 
my first company was selling computers into the home market, literally door to door. So think about this. Uh, and this is circa 1991. I would go out into suburban Houston and in the evenings, I had gone back to Houston where I'd started my career and literally had a bevy of college kids and we would knock on doors and we would have a, a computer on a flight attendant's little luggage rack with bungee cords on it. And we would go in people's living rooms and show them what they could do with a home computer because I know it sounds crazy, but people had not had one before and didn't know what to do. And uh, so I learned a lot of lessons about going into people's homes and what experience and challenges they had with embracing technology. And that was really foundational. I didn't make a lot of money with the business. It was challenged and the cost of delivery model wouldn't scale. But during the process, I got a call from a, a guy who'd been in the business for maybe six or eight years who was pretty successful named Michael Dell who uh, invited me to come a visit with him because he thought he might want to buy it. I didn't sell it to him, but I sold it to someone else. And as a late 20-something, I put a little bit of money in my back pocket with my first truly successful uh, venture. Uh, so I don't know if I grade that as, as a win or a success. I think it was a win. It was a small one, but it was early enough in my career that I got a lot of training and I got a couple of bucks. I love that. And can we just talk about that, you know, actually going out and going after your clients like you did in that way. What was the uh, fears you had doing that? And what did you learn by interacting with people uh, by knocking on their doors? Yeah. Well, think about, think about the knowledge that you get from having face-to-face -face discussions with a customer in their home. I mean, we were doing, in essence, evangelism work, trying to sort of spread the gospel of what technology could do for you because people didn't really understand, right? They're like, what would I use this thing for? So uh, that was really foundational and understanding your buyer's mindset. Because if you're crawling around on the living room floor looking for a telephone jack to plug in a modem and a power cord, and you're dealing with a family and their children and you're talking to them, that's a very intimate exchange. And so to sit there and watch them interact with my product for the very first time and the challenges... I just don't know where else you get that training. And so much of that is honestly, uh, Peter has stayed with me now for, for 30 years because you, you learn that there's that exchange between human beings and their interface with, a, with technology. The challenges are kind of universal even today. So it was very foundational for me. Totally understand. Did you ever fear, you know, uh, going out and knocking on people's doors or how did you, how did you overcome that? Yeah. Um, I'm probably a little more gregarious by nature. It probably, I, I probably had less fear than your average person, uh, but it's still intimidating. And, and let's be super clear. Uh, nine out of 10 doors you knocked on looked at you like you were nuts, especially in 1991. Like what, what you're here to do what? So uh, you had to deal with a lot of rejection, right? So uh, I didn't fear that near as much as I was scared to death of not making payroll. I had started this company on a $10,000 loan and I just didn't have a lot of wiggle room. So again, kind of like the, the early stages with selling polo shirts to kind of help call, cover college expenses, failure wasn't really an option. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you had Billy Shepard on, right? Talking about do what you fear, you know, which by the way, I thought was a great piece that, uh, that, that you did. And, you know, again, you just kind of have to embrace that fear, uh, especially as an entrepreneur, whether you're young or old, I can assure you, you're going to face challenges that you are afraid of, that seem insurmountable. And one of the other rules of this crazy business we call entrepreneurialism is that you will have days that you will be atop the mountain high with 
your sails filled with enthusiasm and you can snap your fingers and an hour later, you look like you're on the precipice of complete and total uh, failure. So you just have to learn how to ride that. I, I liken it to being an actor. Man, you got to get a lot of doors slammed in your face. And if you can't be thick skinned and suit back up and take the rejection, and sometimes it feels personal because the thing you've created, a lot of people look at it and say, what are you nuts? I have no interest in that. It can be a very personal uh, rejection. So uh, you got to suit up and be ready to play. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely a contact sport, um, very similar to what I, what I did all my life, karate. But one thing that I'm interested in when we talk about rejection and, uh, you know, that fear of, of failing, uh, there's a lot of people listening here that wants to create something. They're on they're onto something as well. But as we know, most people quit a little bit too early. Uh, so what do you want to say to people out there now that are struggling and they're like, hey, I'm, I think I'm doing everything, but it doesn't work. Uh, and they, they start to fear rejection and, and all of those things. Yeah. Well, regrettably, there is no magic bullet on exactly when to throw in the towel. Um, I wish there were. It's, a, it's always a, a one of the top questions because this is a challenge. Um, well, I think I can answer it indirectly in that there's a, there's a fine line between uh, being all in, burn the ships, fully committed, I'm not going anywhere, and then also being bullheaded and stubborn in the face of a lot of data that just says, hey, this will not work. And so again, that, that's, a, that's one I can't tell you exactly what that point is. I will tell you this. Most younger or new entrepreneurs uh, fail miserably at socializing their idea and getting as much feedback as possible, particularly very young entrepreneurs who think they can't tell anybody about their idea because they're afraid it'll be stolen. So they try to develop somewhat in a vacuum and be very limited in terms of how much they share about their project. And by the way, Nothing can be further from the truth. I've been doing this 30 years. I think I can I can name one time when somebody stole somebody's idea, and that was the supposedly the Winklevoss twins with Mark Zuckerberg. And even that one didn't stand the test of measure. So, but what you do when you share with as many people as possible is you're just harvesting more and more feedback. And I'll tell you that leads to iteration to iteration. You sharpen the sword, you get to a finer point with your product. But also as as you're sharing, if you get a mountain of evidence and data from everybody from trusted advisors to friends to family to outsiders who should have some IP in the space, that it's not going to work and here's the reasons why and there's some consistency and here's the reasons why, you have to take a hard look and maybe you've uh, mounted the wrong horse, you know? Maybe this isn't the one to ride. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think it's sometimes also a fear of being judged and I know there's, there's a saying, you know, most men, don't don't journal because their their biggest fear is that someone would find their journal and read their thoughts, <laughs> which is unheard of, right? right. It never happens. But it's it's so interesting how we build up these things in our mind. And 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 I'm so interested in mindset. I became a world medalist by studying all these great minds and how to act under pressure. Uh, but. When it comes to how much is mindset when it comes to being successful in business? Well, except for the few that get lucky, and those do exist, but there's no way to sort of play the lucky card. Um, (laughs) I think mindset is everything. I mean, I've seen more what I would call um, B-class entrepreneurs, meaning not the best pedigree academically, not the best 
previous work history, but people that had a really good idea and were so fundamentally committed to success that by true grit, they were able to grind through and be successful. So I think mindset is, I don't want to say everything, you still have to have acumen and you still have to have a legitimate business proposition, but I've seen a lot of okay ideas go gangbusters and I've seen a lot of fabulous ideas with the wrong leaders go nowhere. So I think was it, um, um, I, I think that old expression was it, uh, knowledge is power, but enthusiasm pulls the switch. I think it's Ben Franklin. It's just so true, uh, not to default too much to the emotive side, but if you are not committed mentally and you're not enthusiastic and passionate and, and quite frankly, dedicated to a fault, uh, it's very difficult for most, most of us to find success. Yeah. So, so what do you do, Mark, on a day-to-day basis to, you know, to be strong in your mind and, and to stay positive, but also, you know, in the moment? Yeah. Well, on a personal level, I start my day with, with meditation and prayer, and that's just kind of rebalances me. And uh, I start off with just a thankfulness for all the things in my life, because it's really, it's really hard to be in a bad mood if, if you start uh, your day with listing the things that you're thankful for, whether it's your family, your good health, all the, the wonderful things in your world. So um, uh, that's where I find my peace. But when it comes to, to like my uh, enterprises, like today, you know, I'm involved with Grata. Uh, Grata, I'm just so passionate about the idea that we have developed a technology that can genuinely change the lives of 80 million people. And I've never had my hands on dials this big before. So I run a bit on adrenaline just because I'm passionate about the cause. And yes, I wanna create a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And yes, the spoils from that would be wonderful. But at at this particular stage of my career, honestly, money is not the motivator. Uh, Impact and change is. And so, for me, I stay tuned, quite frankly, by making sure that I'm, I'm right in my head spiritually. I'm in the gym for a couple hours every morning to start the day super early because that's another component of me being leveled. Uh, but then I run on a lot of enthusiasm because I'm just genuinely passionate about the cause and I know the impact we can have. And so you can either let that be a pressure that's debilitating because you can think of the magnitude of it. In my case, I find it incredibly empowering and uh, so I'm a bit of a junkie, I guess, on the uh, adrenaline of doing something that's really important and can really help a lot of people. I love that. And we're going to talk about Grata. Uh, I'm very curious to, to hear about the idea and all of that. But before, I just want to go back. You were working at Wall Street Journal, which, which is, you know, might be a dream job for many people. Like, what was it that made you say, hey, I got to do something else? Yeah. Well, I started off in Houston and I had some success after I came out of college and then I got shipped to Silicon Valley and I was working on all these tech accounts. And I was a a really young guy to have the level of responsibility that they set in my lap. And so I was super privileged to work around Apple and Hewlett Packard and Intel and all these big companies at the time. And being at the Wall Street Journal, you got a seat at the table uh, in ways that other publications didn't just because of the magnitude of who we were. So I got to sit at what I call at the thrones of marketing power with the chief marketing officer of Intel and HP and some of these companies I named, and then around a lot of the top ad agencies. So I just, I was just kind of absorbing all that as the young guy in the room and learning. And you spend enough time around super smart people. Uh, e- even a guy like myself can become uh, fairly intelligent or at least well-versed in the trade. So I just learned so much from being around all these really talented people. And I knew that I wanted to be in tech. I've been bitten by the tech bug. 
uh, I had been out of college after I did my stint in Los Angeles. I'd been out of college a total of, I guess, four years. And, uh, and I had just gotten married to my college sweetheart, who was four years my junior, five years my junior. So it was kind of like, okay, I'm making a nice living. I loved being in the Bay Area. I loved being in Los Angeles. She loved the idea of me taking her back to Texas and being back home home. So it just, I think a lot of things sort of lined up. The juxtaposition was it was time for change. And I had an idea and that was selling computers into the home market around 91, right before the whole home PC thing was taken off. And I thought I could uh, cut my own pathway. So I went back to Houston where I started my career just because I had a lot of uh, business contacts. And, uh, and so for me, a lot of it had to do with, a, again, an intersection of both personal desires and the fact that I had an idea. Yeah. Nice. So let's talk about Grata. Like, how did that idea come about? And can you just tell people what it is and, um, you know. Right. No, I'd love to. So uh, I, the easiest way for me to explain it is, is to tell you first, I'll tell you the story second, how I got there, but just explain really sort of the application. The thesis was real simple. Every time you and I get out of an Uber, there's a sequence that we go through, right? We know what that exit is. I can give a five-star rating to the driver. I can say something nice and have an optional tip, depending on how I feel, right? Five-star rating, say something nice, optional tip. Why is that limited to a couple hundred thousand Uber drivers? What about the other 80 million service sector employees in the U.S. alone? Our baristas, the people handling us, our dry cleaning, the folks that, that our mechanic that does a great job. Uh, why is it we limit it just to Uber drivers? And so the initial thesis was, there's not a platform or a mechanism to recognize the good deeds of all these hardworking Americans. There's no way for them to get a permanent work record of their good deeds because there's no LinkedIn for the service sector. So when people do a good job, it falls by the wayside. It doesn't become a part of their permanent record to benefit them as they try to move up the food chain in their career. And then lastly, there was no mechanism to reward. So the idea was we could expand this and we could solve a very big need by bringing together the community of the ecosystem around the working class. You and I live in a LinkedIn world where we have LinkedIn, we have salesforce.com. We are digitally connected with our customers, our employer, our future employers, our peers. So we're in a networked world. If I'm changing tires at Discount Tire, right? Where's my connectivity? Where do I connect with my customers to build my book of business? Where do I harvest feedback if I'm super good at my job so that my resume shows how awesome that I am in the words of my customers so that I can get a raise or a promotion or a, or a new job somewhere else? So there was a disconnect in the ecosystem around the working class. And, uh, and that's what we wanted to solve. And how, how, did, how did this idea come about? Yeah. So, no, I love this story. So uh, I went into a Home Depot and I went out on Saturday and I had this little honeydew list of like five things I needed to do. And by the way, full confession, I have to tell you, Peter, I'm not naturally very handy. Okay. It's just, it's just not my <laughs> gift. Right. So I go in and I, I was going to get a, I needed to get a red wine stain out of a limestone floor. I was going to touch up some, an antique piece of furniture that got scratched. I had my list. And when I got there, this guy named Frank waited on me, perfect Home Depot name. And, and Frank said, look, I got you covered. Come with me. And for an hour and 15 minutes, he took me up and down the aisles to find all the products that I needed, but he also gave me detailed instructions on exactly how to do this stuff when I got home. And I was so blown away with this. I mean, you and I, we've all had those really great service experience where we go, God, that guy's awesome, or that lady's unbelievable. So when I checked out, 
I made a beeline for that elevated manager stand in the back because I wanted to let them know that forevermore, I, I'm never going to a Lowe's again. I'm a Home Depot guy, and I want you to know it's because of this employee. Well, um, I get to the counter, and the guy says, oh, yeah, 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 he's great. Uh, uh, he's wonderful. Uh, I'm not the manager, but I'll pass it along. Have a nice day. Just totally blew me off. And as I'm walking back to my car, I'm thinking, well, that's really terrible because that employee is not going to get really any recognition for the great job or the praise that I delivered. It's falling and it's falling by the wayside. And then as a chief marketing officer, I started thinking, wow, what a lost opportunity for customer engagement. I literally approached the store manager to raise my hand and say, I love this guy. You guys are awesome. And they didn't make any digital or otherwise connection with me for future benefit, which is a huge miss. And then when I got in my car as a customer, this is the third group in this sequence, I realized what a, what a miss because I wish I had Larry's cell phone number or email address. I wish there was a way I could have connected with Larry so the next time I have problems, I could ping Larry and say, hey, are you working today between three and five? I would really love to get some help with blank, right? And so I realized that the miss there in that connection, and that's what led me down the path that we have to find digital tools and to solve for this problem. And when we started digging in and we realized no one had done this, all the organizations said, Mark, you have no idea what a huge thing this is. We have no data at all on our frontline employees. We can measure mid-management and senior management, but we don't have a digital version of a customer comment card where we can harvest feedback from our customers on how an individual employee is performing. If we could, it would be great. We just don't know how to get it. So we realized there was a data miss as well as a, a, a ecosystem that needed to be built. And we think we can do it on the heels of one very easy, seamless way to simply say, thank you. You did a great job. I appreciate you. And by the way, on the human front, I think we would all agree right now in the public discourse, we could use a lot more praise and a lot more acknowledgement and recognition of people than, than uh, maybe the uh, reverse. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how much, you know, when someone tells you, hey, this made me happy, you really helped me out, how, how that changes everything in your day, right? And I, I think I was just realizing that yesterday that we are craving connection now more than ever because everything that has happened has kind of disconnected us from, from the, our communities. Right. Uh, so I think this is, this is very, very interesting. And I, from a business perspective, how, how are you going to market this and get people to use this product? Right. So uh, our go-to-market really takes the sort of two distinct pathways, and we're going through that discovery process right now. As you know, we just launched, so we're one week into this, although we've been building the technology for 14 months. Uh, COVID changed a lot of things. You know, to be very honest, it, it made our product even more desirable because all of a sudden all these companies, and, and I think we as a, as a public body, finally recognized how important our frontline people really were. And you know, Shame on us for not knowing it before COVID, because we should have. But all of a sudden, we realized that frontline healthcare workers and people that were stocking our groceries were a lifeline. And so what's happened on, on the business front is companies have all kind of rushed to the microphone and said, we care about our frontline people. You know, uh, Hopefully, most of that is, is sincere and genuine. Um, so we have, a, we have a B2B SaaS go-to-market where large companies like a Home Depot could say, we want all 50,000 of our store employees 
to have the client app and we're going to integrate uh, Grata into our point of sale systems, into our digital mobile app. So customers can very easily just click on a button, much like a dating app. You can stream through and see the faces and the names. Oh, there's the person that waited on me and easily give them a five star, say something nice and where appropriate an optional tip. So we have a B2B SaaS side where we're engaged with companies right now talking about how we do these deployments so that they can create those customer connections with Mark like they lost in the example I gave you. Uh, create the connection between myself and the employees so I can reach out to them in the future, but also so they can produce employment data or performance data on these employees. But I hope that the number one motivation on the business to business side is that they know their human beings deserve to be recognized and deserve to build a portfolio of their good deeds and they care about their people. So that's on the business to business front. On the B2C side, it's just like LinkedIn. So it's important to know that anybody can go sign up right now. They can download the app, put in their resume, just like LinkedIn. You don't need your company's permission. It's all free. And you could start using the app. If you're a barista, uh, people could start giving you five-star ratings and giving you comments that you can put into your permanent record tomorrow. So we're testing both go-to-markets. Obviously, I'd like to see both of them catch fire. Uh, we focused initially on the B2B side because there were so many companies that wanted to solve for this problem. But uh, I believe that when people get in the habit of using the app, uh, you're absolutely right. We, we crave connection, but we, there's also something really wonderful that happens when you do take the time to praise another human being. We call it the praise loop, L-L-O-P. And we think the praise loop is all about that great feeling you have as a giver. And we, we've gone that axiom, better to give than receive. It's really true when it comes to human beings. You feel good when you brighten somebody's day. And so I think it's infectious. And as we start getting in the habit of having an easy way to just say thank you, good job, well done, I recognize you, uh, I think it warms, warms us both the person giving the grata as well as the individual receiving. I mean, I love it. And I think it's, you know, gratitude is so important. We, like, I thought about that the other day. Sometimes I, you know, when you're in business, when you're focusing on growing on this and that, sometimes you forget to be grateful to see where you are. And, and then you go back and you see, you know, old texts from a friend or for a, from a client and that, that gives you energy. So I think that the comments and the positive feedback is also a, will be a great reminder for people that are doing hard, hard work for sometimes a low wage to get more energy, you know, and to grow it. Because if you do a great job, what will happen is that now you're more attractive on the market, especially if you can see that, right? Right. No, you nailed it. And by the way, I had a misadventure in hospitality. I bought a chain of restaurants. And by the way, I was terrible at it. So just a full confession. And um, uh, but what I learned in the process, you know, was a lot about service industry workers and how you hire and and, and trying to find out who's good and who's not. Because there's because people don't have these scores in any of this kind of data, you, you always kind of roll the dice and you have a very high turnover. But just imagine for a minute. With our app, with Grata, we have a resume feature. And, and by the way, in another week, we're gonna have a publish button that you hit a button and it will create a PDF of your resume and all your customer comments. So think about this scenario. I'm a server and I'm looking for a job at a new restaurant. I come in to interview, here's my resume. Okay, great, old school, got it. Here's where I've worked, here's my experience. But let me show you page two. Here's the addendum. Here's 50 of my customers by name with their face 
their comments. These 50 people gave me a five-star rating. You wanna know if I'm good? Ask my customers. Here's what they say about my performance. I mean, that is an absolute game changer. As somebody that used to hire those individuals, if I had customer comments to prove that you were good, first of all, I'm gonna to wanna to hire you on the spot because you're a known quantity. Second of all, I'm gonna pay you more. We're democratizing opportunity because if you're that good, I want you on my team. But it even gets better. Not only does she have 50 or he has 50 comments from customers how great they are, she or he are connected with them on Grata. So she can send them a note to her book of business and say, hey guys, I'm now working down the street at a new place, come see me. So we're empowering that server to have not only a documented work history of their great deeds, but co-ownership, if you will, of their customer list. So this is a real game changer in terms of putting power in the hands of the people who deserve it most, the people that are doing the heavy lifting and getting dirt under their nails. So in that regard, I, I think we're gonna see a complete change um, in balance of power. It's not something employers should fear, quite the contrary. If you don't take care of your great people, they're gonna leave. And at the end of the day, you made the point about how important recognition is. McKinsey study said that one in five of your top performing frontline people, one in five, 20% of your workforce will quit in the next year, not over compensation, not over conflict with the superior, lack of recognition and appreciation, full stop. So, and by the way, I've got data from three or four other sources. Murphy, Murphy and Murphy said that, uh, uh, that uh, actually a reduction or an increase in employee retention is worth a 10 point gain in top line sales. So it makes business sense to say thank you as an organization. It's not just good for the heart, it's good for your P&L. And, and that's what's so wonderful about Grata. No, and, and I think it's it's a learning lesson because we, we've seen this, it's not all, all about how much money you make. We wanna feel recognized. Every person wants to feel recognized. And I think in this, you know, I think one thing that has been good been with this year is that it has made a lot of us slow down and kind of, you know, think about our lives. And, and I, I, I truly believe that a lot of people are going to make some great changes this year and the next coming years in their lives. But also what I'm trying to take with is, you know, say thank you more often, you know, in, in different ways, be, be kind to the person. It's not just like, Hey, here's my coffee, get out. No, it's a person making that coffee, you know, and that woke up at five just to, to, to brew that coffee for you this morning. Right. And uh, so I'm, I'm working on that. And I know every time when I put my mind and my, my heart in gratitude mode, you know, everything becomes better. Yeah. Hey, uh, just a quick story to follow up to support that point. And it's a little embarrassing, but I went to my own Starbucks and I went through the line and got back in my car and I realized I, I really wish I had said something to my barista at the front counter because she's always in a great mood, cheerful. I got out of my car, got back in the line, got back up to the counter and she said, oh, was there something wrong with your coffee? I said, no, no, no. I just want to come back up here and tell you how much I appreciate the job that you do. You're always cheerful. You're always in a great mood. And then I put $3 tip in the jar for my $4 coffee, let's just say, right? Well, she began to cry. Now, super awkward. There's people in line, I'm sure, who are thinking, who's the old guy that made the nice, sweet young girl at the counter start crying, right? It's really, really <laughs> awkward. She starts crying, but she says, I just want to tell you, thank you. You have no idea how much that means to me. I don't work here because I make great money. I love being around people. And I love being a part of their day. And it brings me joy to know that I start off their day in a good way. 
it's fulfilling to me. And she said, you've made my day. Now, first of all, that was a wonderful thing to know that that's the kind of impact you can have when you tell somebody yes. But talking about this gratitude loop, for the rest of the day, I was on cloud nine. I went to lunch that day and I know I grossly overtipped because I was just in the spirit of giving. I just wanted, I wanted to show more love. We feel better about ourselves when we take a minute to acknowledge these other human beings. And the fact that all of that can be wrapped up in a bow that also means enhanced top line, better employee retention, real business outcomes being driven by doing the right thing. Again, it's what gets me so pumped up and you nailed it. So many people are not there because they're not working as a barista because they have aspirations to be a big time entrepreneur and make a lot of money. They're there because they love their work. And when you pause to acknowledge them, you make a world of difference in their lives. Yeah, you do. And, and you know, there's one thing that I'm working on. There's a reason why there's a name tag on all these people because they're human beings. So I always try to acknowledge them by their name yeah. when I leave. And I've noticed that like even Dale Carnegie said, like everybody's favorite word is their own name. So I think that's that's something, you know, Mark, that we we could be even better at, right? Yes, agreed. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's talk about the business side. So now you're you're launching this amazing app and it has all this potential, but like how do you go from like having potential to actually doing it? Like what are you gonna do in your to keep your mindset strong to build this? Uh, because I think this is an interesting question for all the people out there that are, you know, doing something, creating a great product, but now the real work kicks in. And after day three, when you're not excited or get like 100 no's, like how do you keep going? Yeah. Well, again, that's an individual question for each person, as I kind of alluded to. In my own world, uh, my enthusiasm is just because I realize the mission is is so important and, and I'm absolutely dedicated to seeing it through. Um, um, whatever that outcome is, it's going to get 100% of my attention. It's It's too important not to. Uh, but you do, you just, you have to, to suit up every single day. In our case, yes, the launch is off. We've brought the app to market. The next steps for us, uh, quite frankly, are about building our team and going out in a, in a bigger way and executing. What's happened is there's been a whole lot of enthusiasm from both individuals and the corporate side on the B2B um, component. So for us, it's really around executing. It's around building out our team and building out those initial beta sites with a successful outcome uh, so that we're converting all of those into customers. And some of the large scales beta, the smaller clients are, are going to be going live immediately as full-time customers. So uh, in that crawl, walk, run scenario, we, we're just in that crawl phase with a wonderful product that solves a incredible need uh, and we really have to go out and execute. So for us, we're, we're, it's about fundraising, it's about team building, it's about executing on initial clients, and it's just the blocking and tackling of bringing that business to market. And you nailed it. You said, this is where kind of the, you start getting into the dirty work uh, and the hard work, and, and you learn so much discovery in those initial clients that help you tune not only your product, but also um, how you integrate that. What are the upsides? What feature sets need to change based on either in customers feedback, an uh, enterprise client's need for additional data sets? So a lot of it's kind of an ongoing iteration is even as you come out of the gates, at least in the software business. So uh, we're ready for that. We're, we're excited and ready to go. But you're absolutely right. You move from uh, you move from doing practice uh, to doing at the very least preseason game playing. 
Yeah. So let's talk about execution. I know like a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, sometimes like I don't fear work. I don't fear action, but I have a hard time knowing what's the right next thing to do. So sometimes I, I put a lot of action into the wrong wrong things. Like how do you, do you have a process for deciding what you, what is the most one important thing that you should do to move your business forward? Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit of an ad hoc process. I, my process orientation is, is not as strong as I would like. Uh, but I basically do a prioritization around what I need to do each weekday month. And so I'm trying to look and, and, uh, chart, what do I need to do next? Because the interconnection between many of these elements is unavoidable. So, it's not like you can usually just build a very simple paint by numbers, one, two, three, four, five sequencing. It's much more the proverbial multiple balls up in the air. And so that takes um, uh, a fair amount of effort because you are dealing to some degree with, you know, um, uh, I guess a three level chess, right? 3D level chess, if you're not careful. So uh, really, quite frankly, just I have to do a lot of, of uh, a continually uh, uh, re-analyzing what my priority sets are, mapping those against the outcomes of the day. Uh, there's sort of no way around that, uh, uh, particularly again in, in computer software, because especially at this stage, part of my day is around recruitment and hiring. Part of my day is around investors. Part of my day is around product development. Part of my day is around business development. Part of my day is around implementation and deployment around initial clients. Part of my day is around doing press opportunities and things to heighten the ele elevate the visibility. So just in that very brief summary, you can see that it, you're dealing with a matrix system that you're going to have to stay atop of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why meditation and working out helps yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, listen, you are, a, you are a super successful athlete. So I think you know intimately the role of fitness in sort of your holistic uh, approach to everything, right? And so I don't know, spiritually and, and physically, I think if we're out of tune, it's very different to perform on the field of play of business if we have structural uh, deficiencies in all these other areas of our lives. So uh, it's trying to find that right balance. Yeah, and one thing that I'm curious about, and I know a lot of people are struggling, they have ideas, they start on the project, but they never take it to market. They're, they're never finishing that book. They're never finishing that app or, because there's always something to be improved. Like, how did you work on that process to actually get it, get a product launched? Yeah. Uh, well, in my case, I had the idea in 2017 and uh, I vetted it locally around the Austin VC community and some others. And I got some mixed reviews. Everybody loved the outcome, but there was, there was one problem I was dealing with. Everyone said, look, this is a binary. If you could fix this one thing, uh, you're off to the races. And I wasn't sure how to fix that one thing. I won't give you all the inside baseball, but um, the net was along the same time I had an offer from Rackspace to come be chief marketing officer. And it was a really exciting opportunity. So I parked this on the shelf and did a couple of years in corporate. And after flying around the world and doing all the work at Rackspace, which I love, wonderful organization, uh, it was time to leave. And so I dusted it back off. And as soon as I got into it again, I realized once I figured out how to solve for that one roadblock, I realized that we had something and I just got exceedingly passionate about driving this through. And that's been roughly 14 months ago. So in my case, I had to solve for one missing element before I thought I had market viability. 
And once we were able to work through that and determine it, I think that's where when I our opening comments about running on adrenaline and just hyper uh, emotive enthusiasm over the problem we're solving really kind of kicked in because I knew right then, I, look, I spent a year in venture capital. I looked at a lot of deals. I knew this could be a multi-billion dollar business if we could execute. And I knew that we could improve the human condition for at least 80 million people here domestically alone. And that got me so pumped. I haven't really come down from that, to be honest with you. I think you it's coming back to, you mentioned it time after time to service to others, right? And I mean, I feel the same way. Sometimes I don't feel like, you know, working out or preparing for a conversation, you know, or, or doing all the work, but then I go back to say, Hey, it's not about me. If somebody listens to this conversation and make a big shift in their own life, which makes them happier and more successful, then it's all worth it. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think too, you know, we're all motivated in different ways. And by the way, I, I should tell you, you get motivated to different things at different stages in your life. So when I was a young entrepreneur, I was driven probably more by ego, financial return, whatever the attainment of success was, right? It was less material. I think it was more just, I, I want to do something big and, and I don't want to be working for somebody else and I want to go take the hill. Um, as you get a little bit longer in your career, and which is where I am, um, uh, many of us get much more tuned to wanting to do things that have impact and matter. I don't want to use the word legacy because I don't feel like I'm, uh, I'm on the cusp of my life being over. But when you're decidedly in that third and fourth quarter, I think your priorities change. And again, you know, probably should have had that same care and, and uh, wanting to, to take care of human beings in a bigger way when I was younger, but just in full transparency, didn't have it to the same degree uh, as I have it now. And so, um, again, I think just we all work off different motivations, but and those motivations can change, especially if you make some money and have a success under your belt. It's a lot easier to get more causal down the line because, well, I've done that. Uh, what can I do now that really changes human beings' lives? It's not just about making some more money. And uh, so, but it's just where, where you find your passion. You know, what is it that, that you know, flips your switch? Yeah. And, and I want to talk about ego. And do you think, is ego a good or a bad thing? Well, it obviously can cut both ways. I think most entrepreneurs, with the exception of maybe those that are just highly, highly technical and at times sometimes maybe um, um, accidental entrepreneurs, I think there's some measure of ego. You know, I, I think it has to be. I, I, don't, I don't think you jump on the stage to be a, a television personality, uh, a national politician, or, or want to lead a large organization without some measure of that. Uh, but again, I, I, I'm not well-trained in psychology. I think there's, a, for many of us anyway, and I was pretty transparent with you about having some financial challenges young that sort of molded, I think, uh, uh, part of my drive. But on the same token, I wasn't like you. I wasn't a great athlete, and I wasn't a gifted student. So uh, there, I'm sure there was some core that said, I, I want to be recognized for being successful. Uh, it's just a different way than that barista wanted to be recognized and appreciated. Mine was probably on a scale, just I, I needed more. But I think ego plays a role in some capacity with all of us. Yeah, I mean, I'm studying success and that that's one of my, my biggest passions. And I, I've done more than 200 of these conversations with, with amazing people. And one thing that I found, and I'm curious to see what, what your thoughts on that is that a lot of times success, I'm not talking about happiness now, I'm talking about success when we, when we talk about performance, 
comes from a drive of being loved. And usually the, the more, I don't want to say unloved, but the more challenges you have had, the bigger that drive is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I've also found is that all these amazing people, they can do everything to become an Olympic champion or build this amazing business. But once you arrive at that destination, you realize that that's a false sense of being loved is not real. And then you have to reinvent yourself and, and, and maybe give and help more. Uh, so what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think, look, the parable or the life lesson around uh, money won't buy you happiness or the highly successful yet incredibly dysfunctional, you know, second generational wealth family. I mean, those stories are, I think, well told. Uh, but you, you nailed it. Success and happiness are distinctly different. Uh, at the end of the day, that young lady who was acknowledged for just being good as a barista uh, was happy enough to be drawn to tears over a couple of kind words acknowledging the good job that she does. Uh, I could argue how she felt the rest of the day probably superseded nine out of ten of us in our successful roles who were hand-wringing over the day's challenges and events. So, I mean, I think you're, you're smart to separate the two. And again, those are, those are just very uh, personal. I do think your other point about oftentimes uh, a lack of appreciation, love, a lack of acknowledgement can drive a lot of entrepreneurs. We all have fuel for something. Uh, but then I've also seen successful entrepreneurs who came from very successful families and they just had the grooming and the DNA and maybe quite frankly, uh, the responsibility that, well, we did this well, you need to as well, that have been wonderfully successful. So there's, there's just no one size fits all, but I, I do think there is um, uh, an element to what you're saying about oftentimes we see entrepreneurs who have that extra thing that chip on their shoulder, they were unrecognized, unappreciated, uh, their family struggled financially. Whatever that fuel is that gives them that extra thing to maybe work a little harder and stay a little longer. Uh, I don't know that you can define it precisely, but I do think in general, you're you're onto something, a truth there. Yes. So, so Mark, how do we answer the the million dollar question? How do you create success and also happiness. Yeah. Well, um, I think, and this it sounds overly corny, I have 700 students I talk to this, these topics about all the time. You know, if you're 22 years old, I'm always preaching, think hard about what it is you think will make you happy and you really want to do. There are a few things that will be more unrewarding than to wake up at 55, have been financially successful, and look back on your career and say, you know, I really never enjoyed that. I made some money, but I, I didn't do anything that had impact. I didn't really have fun. I didn't really like it that much. I, I just did it to make a living. If that's what you need to do, that's okay. But it's certainly not the top of the mountain where most of us want to stand. So if you can do something that you're genuinely passionate about, it doesn't have to be changing the world. You don't have to be dedicated to necessarily just improving the lives of others, but you need to be excited about whatever it is you do. And by the way, Entrepreneurs who are doing things they're passionate and excited about are vastly more successful than those that are not. It's just a natural byproduct of the energy and the enthusiasm that you bring to your day and your job, the creativity, the dedication. It flows from something greater than just a calculation that says, this job might be better than that other job. That's not what usually drives 
the top performers, and quite frankly, in my experience, the ones that are most fulfilled on a pathway to sort of happiness. And again, happiness has a lot of flavors. Again, I won't delve into the realm of psychology, but as it relates to entrepreneurship and where we find work-life balance, et cetera, I just think people have to do things that really inspire them. And if you are inspired with an enterprise to give back, that is awesome. If you're inspired to be the best dadgum CPA and build the most world-class financial services firm, then you should go do that. And if you're inspired by creating some new way that brings convenience or measurable benefit to humankind with a software product or a new hardware invention, do that, but pursue something that in your heart of hearts, you feel like will capture both your interest and your enthusiasm. Love that. Mark, I have one final question for you before I let you go. And this is something that I ask all my guests uh, because we're all about sharing stories, tools. But at the end of the day, my goal is for the people that are still here. Thank you, guys. In this day and age, being one hour in, it's it's great and amazing. And uh, that is what can they do right after this podcast to get a little bit more clear on their dreams and goals and actually start taking some action? Yeah. Well, uh, I love Tony Robbins, just full disclosure. And, and you know, he, he came out of your neck of the woods in Santa Monica. And uh, actually, Tony endorsed, I did a book with Simon and Schuster years ago, and Tony was one of my endorsements. So again, full disclosure, connection there. But um, he has a process in, in his early books about discovering success which was about thinking five and 10 years out, kind of imagine what you want your life to be like, right? Is that with the the handsome significant other? Is it a house on a a white house in a nice neighborhood? Uh, Is it a, a, a low stress life, but that incorporates a lot of travel and the freedom to explore the world because you're experiential? Is a big family with a big bevy of kids in suburbia and a peaceful existence as a mom or a dad uh, maybe comparable to something you grew up with in the Midwest. I don't know. Everybody has something different. But begin with the end in mind. Where do I want to be in five years? Where do I want to be in 10 years? And then you have to ask yourself the question, is the pathway I'm on today, personally, professionally, et cetera, am I on the right path to get there? Am I in the right places to meet that person uh, that I want to share my life with? Am I, am I doing the right things, right? These are gut checks that we go through. Uh, is the career path I'm on today going to get me the life I want? If the answer is no, then you need to scratch the record. It doesn't mean that you know exactly what the answer is, but you know what the answer isn't. So I think if we could all just do a little more dreamscaping and be thinking, where do I want to wind up? And if where I'm at today is not there, then we've got to do some self-evaluation about, okay, that's not going to get me there. I'm going to wake up at 35 and 45 and 55, and I'm going to have fallen short unless I do something different and then begin that pathway of discovery to find out what that something different is if you don't know already. But if what you're doing today is not going to get you there, you've got to look deeper for what will. Yeah, it's so true. And it, it sometimes it hurts to, to see reality and to see what's going on and but I urge you, don't wait because we see what, what can happen. And as a martial artist and, you know, karateka, I think about life as one day, one lifetime because we are truly not guaranteed tomorrow. So 
get started and get started now. Uh, Mark, one thing, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you or Grata? Yeah, so uh, first of all, Grata is available for download on iTunes or on Google Play or just go to our website, which is gratapro.com, gratapro, and you can easily download. Connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, especially if you, uh, uh, if you have interest in Grata or if I can be a connection for you anyway, I'm happy to. And I'll just say, boy, I, I love your point about encouraging people to go now. And, and since you brought up uh, a martial arts, I'll stay in Asia. There's a great Chinese proverb. Okay, we'll move continents a little. There's a great Chinese proverb about um, yesterday was the best day to plant a tree. You know what the second best day is? Today. Get going, get started. Or I think it's actually 20 years ago was the best day to plant a tree. The next best day is today. So it's about just activating and going. And so, you know, Peter, thanks for all you do, encouraging people. Great stuff here. I've really enjoyed being with you. And I thank you for having me on. Thank you. And thank you, everybody that are here with us today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I do this for free. I want to share as much positive content online as I possibly can. Even after, you know, I watched The Social Dilemma the other day, and it's it's crazy. There's so much, I would, I'm going to say garbage and shit out there that makes our minds get, get fucked up. So please, you know, share more positive content online and in real life, acknowledge people. If you like what we do, please share this conversation with other people so they also can get in a more positive mindset so we all can take this as a community and and deliver more smiles, more happiness, more gratitude, and more success. Uh, Check us out at ilovesuccess.co. There's more than 200 conversations right now. Check out my book, The Goal Book, where you can get like a real good roadmap to set goals and achieve them in the different areas of your life. That's it, guys. Uh, See you next week. And thanks so much. 